pressure grows on the Kremlin, both at home and elsewhere, over the plight of the opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who remains in prison. The UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson visits Scotland today, officially to visit some of Scotland's coronavirus response facilities, but more quietly, with an eye on quelling the growing independence movement there. And from Dorothy's ruby slippers to the stone tablets from the Ten Commandments, we'll hear from the director of the new Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles, which is scheduled to open at the end of the year. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 28th of January and I'm Thomas Lewis and with us today to discuss some of the day's top news stories from around the world are Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello, she's in London for us, and Monocle's own Henry Rees Sheridan who is in New York City. Carlotta, Henry, great to have you both with us once again on the programme today. How is the week shaping up for you both uh, there in your respective corners of the world. Carlotta, let's begin with you. Well, it's been quite, uh, I wouldn't say relaxed week, but it's been uh, productive, let's put it that way. Uh, We actually, it's lovely to be speaking with Henry again. We had him on The Urbanist uh, this week too. Uh, We are exploring New York and how New York is depicted not only uh, on film and in television, but also in music and how you are able to tell the story of a city uh, through that. So we had Henry joining us to discuss about his view uh, of cinematic New York, uh, a treat that aired uh, a few hours ago here on Monocle 24. And perhaps you can give us a sneak peek, Henry, of what you found on your sonic tour of New York City for this week's edition of The Urbanist. Right now, I can do that for you. Basically, it was a, a tour through through film. So I talk about some of my favourite films in which, uh, in which New York is depicted. Um, probably the one I want to mention now is uh, are the Safdie Brothers films, uh, Good Time and Uncut Gems. Have you, have you seen that, Thomas? Either I haven't seen it, actually. No, I haven't. But I've heard great things. Yeah, no, they're, they're excellent. Um, but just yeah, no. It was it was great to talk with uh, Andrew uh, and Kiara as well. Who uh, I'm not sure if Kiara ever comes on the show. Yeah, she was here just yesterday. Uh, but Henry, on the on that movie, uh, the film that you just mentioned from the Safdie brothers, you introduced us to a little detail that I had no idea. That is the fact that they actually use you know just regular citizens as the extras in the movies and sometimes even as characters. So you have New York not only in the background of the film, uh, but, you know, just regular New Yorkers were involved in the film too. And that is quite special. Uh, I should add, actually, in answer, because you did, you did begin by asking us how our weeks were going, Tomas. I just, uh, uh, about three minutes before coming on air, took delivery of an Ikea table. So living the dream. I feel as though every week we speak to you, Henry, or you're having some IKEA delivery made. So I'm sure it's a palace that you are assembling there in New York City. And we will have more time for more cinematic conversations before the end of today's programme. But Henry Sheridan and Carlotta Ribello, thank you very much for being with us on the show today. Well, we begin in Russia, where the fate of the jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny is continuing to create pressure on the Kremlin, both on the streets and towns and cities across the country, but also 
among international governments too. Earlier today, another Russian opposition figure, the former chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov, called for the UK to impose new rounds of sanctions on several figures associated with the Kremlin to increase the pressure on President Vladimir Putin. Well, Stephen Diel is a Russian analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor who told at the briefing today here on Monocle 24 that it may have been a mistake for Vladimir Putin to clamp down on Alexei Navalny and his supporters. But yeah, if he'd left Navalny alone, uh, that would have been something that toned down, would have toned down the demonstrations. But of course, dictators can't do that. Dictators are worried about um, any, any sign of opposition in their kingdom. Uh, and, um, and, and this is something which we've noted for a long time now, and I think becomes ever more true, that what frightened Vladimir Putin most of all is the idea of what the Russians call bunt, which is an uprising from below. It's when people get so fed up with the conditions they're living under, 38% of the population of Russia, at least, the less official figure, are living in poverty. Um, and when you see someone, you know, something like Putin's palace, whoever it belonged to, the, the fact, you know, the money that's been spent on it, $850 for a toilet brush, which would you know, feed a family for a month. Um, when you see things like that, it, it does fuel that uh, aggression from below. And if people are prepared, as they were last weekend, to come out against the cold and against the police truncheons, uh, then Putin has cause to be worried. Stephen D.L. there speaking to us on today's edition of The Briefing. Henry, to begin with you, how effective, going back to this idea of sanctions that we mentioned a little earlier, how effective do you think further sanctions from international governments would be in adding pressure on the Kremlin at this stage of the situation? Or is the unrest, this fury from below, as Stephen D.L. put it there, inside Russia, is that more potent, do you think, than intervention by the outside at this stage? I think if you look at the recent history of Western sanctions against Russia, it is quite difficult to assess uh, their efficacy. Uh, They were ramped up in 2014 after Russia uh, invaded Ukraine. Now, there are some people who say that that they don't seem to have had uh, much of their desired effect. Russia is still active in Ukraine uh, and beyond that has has felt uh, emboldened enough to meddle very directly in, a, in, in Western elections since then as well. On the other hand, some, some people say that the sanctions have in fact dissuaded Russia uh, from more aggressive action in, in Ukraine and, you know, that's obviously a counterfactual claim, which it's difficult to assess the uh, uh, the kind of uh, valence of. But I think in response to the question about is Putin more scared about external sanctions or an uprising by Russians, I think certainly the latter. Um, he, he, he has demonstrated an ability to essentially ignore sanctions uh, when it comes to the values and and outcomes which are which are most precious to him uh and and he it's incredibly unlikely considering how much we know about his desire to maintain power in russia that external sanctions are going to are going to 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 get him to divest any of it on the other hand a critical mass of the russian population really not putting up with 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 what he's up to anymore will you know at least have the potential to make him adapt his style of rule to be more responsive to their needs. Um, 
that's my take on 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 it anyway. And Colotta, that idea that Henry mentioned there, this desire to hold on to power on Vladimir Putin's part, that makes it fairly unpredictable by, by this at this stage, I should say, doesn't it? Of how exactly both he and the Kremlin, what they exactly might do next to try and quell this, the momentum, frankly, that is uh, continuing apace around Alexei Navalny and his supporters. Oh, absolutely. And uh, what has become obvious over the past few weeks is that uh, the tactics used in the past are not working. You know, uh, it's there's even a case being made that you know, he, Vladimir Putin and his allies would have been better to just ignore Navalny and eventually, uh, you know, this momentum that he has now gained will eventually die down. Now, the fact is that we have tens of thousands taking to the streets. This is in more than um, 100 cities across Russia um, over the past weekend. Um, What is, without a doubt, the largest show of opposition for years. Um, So this is something that, you know, Putin needs to seriously think how to deal with this mass discontent because it has it's no longer about one man opposing uh, his long reign in power um people are protesting too and that is obviously um dangerous for Putin if he wishes to remain um where he is now there is one thing that is quite important to um mention which is that of course, that uh, Russian officials are now trying to portray Navalny as almost, you know, acting on behalf of the West and um, not, you know, acting in the interests of Russia. But he has always been quite careful uh, to keep his distance from um, foreign governments, foreign officials, etc. And even though, you know, the European Union, the United Kingdom and the US are being called for um, uh, impose, to impose sanctions and to voice uh their support in this cause. Uh, Perhaps there's a line in between that too, the fact that there needs to be some distance, this needs to be something, uh, if change does happen, needs to come from within Russia. Well, next here on the late edition, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has visited Scotland today. Officially, the Prime Minister's visit was intended to highlight the work of the British military in setting up coronavirus response sites. But the unspoken reason was to quell the momentum of an apparently growing appetite in Scotland for a second independence referendum. Carlotta, there's much news coverage in the UK at the moment about the state of the union between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And if you're a proponent of keeping the UK as it is currently, then those reports don't make for particularly light reading, do they? There are big changes afoot, it seems, in many parts of the United Kingdom right now. No, they don't. You know, now for months, we've had several polls that is specifically when it relates to Scotland, uh, that suggests, you know, the support for Scottish independence is higher than that for staying uh, in the UK. And not that long ago, we had the Scottish independence referendum. And in the run up to Brexit. A lot of people said that if Brexit did go ahead, that we would see the support for independence uh, uh, that would would grow. This is, of course, Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain uh, in the European Union. And all those things paired, of course, with the handling or mishandling, depending uh, how you view the situation of 
of uh, COVID-19 by Boris Johnson and his cabinet has not helped at all. Now, the debate that's happening now is quite interesting. Is this trip by the Prime Minister to Edinburgh an essential trip or not? Does it fall, fall inside or outside lockdown regulations? His government that, you know, his cabinet, which has throughout um, our several iterations of different lo- lockdowns, uh, has broken the rules and that has caused discontent. We've had, uh, perhaps surprisingly, the leader of the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, saying that he agrees with the Prime Minister. He is, in, in fact, you know, he is the Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom. That includes, of course, Scotland. And if he is travelling there, I believe, was to visit a, a vaccination centre and to show support for the NHS during a pandemic, that that is a trip that needs to be made. But of course, on the Scottish side of things, this is very much seen as an unwelcomed guest, an unnecessary visit, and the fact that they're using uh, the term of an essential trip um, uh, against the Prime Minister uh, makes for an amusing reading of the headlines today. And I was watching some of the the coverage during the trip uh, a little earlier, a few hours ago, Carlotta, and uh, Boris Johnson was quoted by the BBC as having saying that notions of Scottish independence were irrelevant. And I just wonder whether now supporters of independence, the Scottish National Nationalist Party, which is in government in Scotland, of course, will seize on that phrase, that word, uh, as further proof that Boris Johnson is not a representative, in fact, of the will of the Scottish people. Henry, to bring you in here and to broaden things out further across the the kingdom, if I can, you and I both hail from Wales, and I grew up speaking Welsh as a first language, and notions of independence in Wales have long been tied to the idea of the survival of the language. Um, given that Welsh is, is still a minority language in Wales, I suppose independence has also in reality been a minority issue. But that sentiment, if you look at recent opinion polls now, seems to be changing into something much broader and in quite a speedy fashion, doesn't it? Well, I think to put things in perspective, so the the kind of reliable polls on Welsh independence that have basically been considered to have the soundest methodology have been conducted by YouGov since 2014. Now, in 2014, there was a 12% support uh, for Welsh independence among those surveyed. Uh, That's increased uh, just in in the seven years since then to 22% support. Now, that's a dramatic increase, uh, but it's important to point out that 53% of those surveyed still say that uh, no, essentially, to Welsh independence. 25% say they don't know, which... Uh, kind of I find uh, uh, amusing but at the same time it would probably put myself in that category I think the conversation around Welsh independence is one that has extremely different contours to the one around Scottish independence and a lot of that I think as you gestured towards in your question is to do with the fact that the Welsh independence movement has tethered itself historically to the question of the defence of the Welsh language, which is spoken by a minority of the Welsh population, only 29% speak it. And even that figure, which is, to put it in perspective, about 870,000 people, it's unclear how many of those people are using Welsh as an, as an everyday language, right? I mean, you can you can, you can can assess someone's, uh, someone as being a Welsh speaker and it, they, they may not actually be using it as a functional language. And so I think 
you know, coming from kind of Anglophone Wales, I come from uh, uh, Swansea, a kind of Anglophone uh, uh, part of Swansea, uh, which is Wales' second city. And I think coming from there, the the people I I kind of know, I think there's a, among them, there's a real sense that there isn't really a party in Wales. They're disillusioned with Labour that they seem as having turned too far to the left and which don't necessarily represent, they have a historic a foothold in Wales through the connection with mining, but they don't necessarily represent a positive vision for the Welsh economy going forward. The Conservatives are still pretty much as despised as they have always been for the last hundred years or so. Plaid Cymru is never going to really connect with these people because they're not putting forward, I think, a platform which is comprehensibly... Uh, uh, wide-ranging in terms of what it's offering, or at least they're, they're not receiving it as such. Um, and so I, th- I, I do think that there's like a really broad base of Welsh voters who don't have a party which is speaking to them at the moment. I'm not sure if you if you agree with that, Thomas. I'd be interested to hear your views, actually, as, as a Welsh language speaker. Yeah, Henry, I think it is interesting because, like you say, the idea of independent state to me was always framed in a way of, well, you know, the Welsh language has been attacked and there's been an attempted erosion of it for, for many centuries, but it has survived and the goal is to make sure it survives and thrives. Your point about uh, how many people use the language day to day, well, that's been the rallying cry of campaigners for, for probably a century or more that if you're going to have a living language, then you need to be able to use it in your day-to-day life. There are some signals, if you look at the number of Welsh language schools, for example, uh, that are now operating in Wales, those numbers have have soared uh, since I went to to Welsh language uh, school probably about 20 years ago uh, by this stage. Um, So it is interesting, and that's why I think this independence moment is being spearheaded by a group called Yes Cymru. Cymru is the Welsh word for Wales. And it's interesting to me because I wonder what that kind of brand of of independence means, given that it isn't tethered to the language and that it seems at the moment many of its supporters don't speak Welsh, uh, like yourself, Henry, and like you you mentioned the the area where you grew up in. So I think it's, as you say, it's, it's not suddenly sort of the majority is supporting a notion of independence for Wales. But I think what is remarkable is that the numbers have jumped so starkly. There was a big poll in one of the British newspapers over the weekend that put it at 31 percent. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, you wouldn't really have been able to to foresee those numbers even a few years ago, I don't think. So it does suggest that ideas of what, what Wales is, the role it plays in the United Kingdom, the role it plays in a, in the wider world is very much at play at the moment. And I think it will be fascinating to see, uh, to see how that conversation plays out. But finally, here on the late edition, it's been decades in the making, but finally, the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, is set to open in Los Angeles this year on the 30th of September. The space has been designed by Renzo Piano and will feature a permanent display of an extensive array of memorabilia, from Shirley Temple's tap shoes to Bruce, one of the animatronic sharks used in Jaws. Well, the director and president of the Academy Museum is Bill Kramer, and he told us a little earlier today what visitors will be able to see when the museum opens at the end of the year. So the museum has five floors of exhibition spaces and two theaters, a 1,000-seat theater and a 288-seat theater. 
the theaters will show daily screenings, panel discussions, symposia. That is where films will be shown, both to complement what's happening in the galleries and standalone screenings and public programs. But in the five floors of galleries that we have, you'll see a three-story core exhibition called Stories of Cinema that walks you through the wide variety, the diverse variety of viewpoints, films, artists that showcase the history of cinema from a very dynamic standpoint. We're gonna be moving a lot of stories through those spaces. In those galleries for opening, you'll see spaces devoted to The Wizard of Oz and all of the arts and crafts that went into making that movie. You'll see a gallery that we're co-curating with Spike Lee devoted to what it means to be a director. And that space will be filled with his personal collection of film memorabilia. We have galleries devoted to the history of the Academy Awards and significant Oscars wins. Bill Kramer, the president and director of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures there, giving us a sneak peek of what will be in store when the institution opens at the end of the year. Henry, Carlotta, to put you both on the spot, uh, listening to this sort of guided tour we had from Bill Kramer there, is there, if there was one item from a movie that you could keep for yourselves in your own little private museum, what would it be? Well, maybe it has to do with uh, the reality of our situation at the moment. But the first thing that came to mind was the flip clock, the alarm clock in Groundhog Day, which you might understand why. It's just, uh, it just the mood that we're, <laughs> we're in at the moment. And I think it will be quite a cool gadget to have. But now turning to serious things, if I could pick um, a, an item from a film, any film in the world, uh, it would be from one of my favorite films of all time, Cinema Paradiso by the Italian director Giuseppe Tornatore and I would love to keep the film projector used uh, in the cinema um, in that movie. Oh, wonderful. I think I've been thinking about this all day as well. And I think for me, it might be the car from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Is that a bit obvious? <laughs> but I had so many dreams about flying away or floating on the sea in that car. How about you, Henry? I'm imagining the potter's wheel from Ghost. Am I correct or am I wrong? Well, Thomas, before I give you my answer, is the reason that you've been dreaming so much of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is because it would actually be a mechanical upgrade from your current vehicle? <laughs> No comment, Henry. But yeah, frankly, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just your dream vehicle. Um, I, I always thought it'd be good to uh, to have the the monolith from two thousand one Space Odyssey. You know, when the monkeys are going going literally ape at the beginning around it. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Where would you put it, Henry? Like in your garden? Like where where would you have it? Probably just probably just right right in the middle of my living room, surrounded by my IKEA furniture. No assembly required, at least. I think it would make for a kind of striking, striking centerpiece and, and contrast. And finally, Carlotta, given that we are talking about the movie industry, award season is almost upon us this year once again. They are, as we know it so far at least, all going ahead, aren't they? Yes, and in fact, the Sundance Film Festival has started today. It's, of course, for the first time ever in a virtual um, uh, iteration. Uh, you know, this is the, the festival where uh, usually we have the showcase of the best indie films out there, a lot of them which then become um, uh, win a lot of awards um, and gain a lot of recognition uh, that year too. It, you know, still thousands of film critics and executives and film lovers will uh, tune in to the 
ceremony and to the festival uh, which begins today. But also this week we had an announcement uh, by uh, the Cannes Film Festival. Now they had planned their physical edition um, to happen in May. They've announced now that the dates are in July. Between the 6th and the 15th of July it will go ahead uh, in the physical format that we all know uh, from previous um, uh, years. Uh, Of course uh, until then a lot of things can change but for now the industry remains hopeful. Of course the awards that are usually uh, uh, held in January and February are the ones of course uh, that are not going forward and if they are have to be of course in a in a uh, digital format but there is hope for the rest of the year. Well, Carlotta Ribello and Henry Reese Sheridan, our very own matinee idols here on The Late Edition. That's all we have time for. For today's programme, a big thanks to the two of you, as always, for being with us on the programme today. A big thank you, too, to Louis Allen, who edited today's programme in London. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Cool. Thanks, gang.